You are listening to The Briefing, first broadcast on the 31st of October 2022 on Monocle 24. Hello and welcome to The Briefing, coming to you live from Studio One here at Midori House in London. I am Marcus Hippi. Coming up on today's programme, Russian missile strikes have hit major cities across Ukraine. We'll get the latest as the Kremlin keeps on targeting critical infrastructure across the country. Then in Brazil, the supporters of Luis Inácio Lula da Silva have been celebrating their candidate's win in the presidential election. Monaco's Fernando Augusto Pacheco will join me in the studio to discuss discuss what the victory of the leftist candidate means for the country. Fernando, can Lula unite the nation? It's a tough ask, Marcos, but his victory speech signified a return to normality in the country. More from Fernando a little bit later. Our Washington correspondent Chris Jermak will also join us with an update on the US midterms. The news of an attack on the husband of House Speaker Nancy Pelosi in San Francisco reverberated all the way around the country to Atlanta, Georgia, where a former president who used to preach hope and change was taking the stage the very same evening of that attack. All that's right here on The Briefing with me, Marcus Hippi. There are widespread electricity blackouts in Ukraine after Russia launched a wave of missile attacks across the country earlier today. There have been reports of explosions near the capital Kiev and in at least 10 other cities and regions. Lesia Vasilenko, Ukrainian MP, joins me on the line to tell us more. Lesia, welcome to the programme. Could you first tell us more about the scale of these most recent missile attacks? Well, this morning there were at least 50 missiles fired across Ukraine. Uh, Over 40 of them were shot down by the air defense system of Ukraine, but still uh, energy infrastructure was hit. There was a damage to power lines, also to power blocks around Kiev, which impacts some 350,000 people who were left without electricity and running water this morning. Did people know to expect more strikes like this? Yes. Uh, In short, the answer is yes. Uh, Over the coming days and the coming weeks, we are to expect more strikes. Actually, this is something that Ukrainian intelligence services warned about as early as uh, late August, that Russia over the fall will be targeting Ukrainian energy infrastructure so as to destabilize the country and uh, cause uh, unlivable conditions for winter for the civilian population. How can Ukraine gets prepared for something like this, those warnings from the intelligence. Is there a way for Ukraine to get prepared for for Russia launching more missile attacks targeting critical energy infrastructure? Well, the only way to prepare is to make sure that the air defense system of Ukraine is up and running at all times and that it is able to perform properly so as to protect uh, the civilians, the the innocent men, women, children out there. And uh, the way to do this is for the West to actually supply supply those uh, air defense system elements, those weapons which are needed to shoot down Russian missiles or Russian drones or whatever else uh, Russia decides to hit Ukraine with. Uh, This is uh, a military assistance effort that needs to come 
uh, in solidarity with what Ukrainians are going through these days. And what Ukrainians are going through is paying for global democracy with our own lives and with the welfare of our families. So this is an example of how important support from the West can be for Ukraine. What are your thoughts about the kind of support Ukraine is getting at the moment? Is that what Ukraine needs? We are getting uh, most of what we are being asked, what what we are asking for, but uh, we are asking for more all the time. The thing is, these weapons we are asking for, we don't keep them in the storage. We use them on a daily basis. That means that these weapons also undergo wear and tear, and very significant wear and tear, because we are up against uh, a massive military machine of uh, a country Uh, times and times bigger than us. And uh, for that reason, Ukraine is continuously asking for more, for more ammunition, for more air defense systems, for more sophisticated air defense systems. If we were to be get, if we were uh, to uh, getting them earlier, then we probably could have saved more lives and more critical infrastructure of Ukraine. But we are where we are now, and I think it is our collective goal to do the most. And when I say our, I mean international community-wise, to do the most to uh, lessen these uh, civilian losses. Lesia, now considering that Russia is constantly targeting Ukraine's critical energy infrastructure, how worried are you about the winter and dropping temperatures? Well, Ukraine gets uh, very cold in the winter. Uh, the temperatures can drop as far as minus 10 and and that's more or less the norm. We can only hope that um, that the winter will be warmer, will be milder uh, this year round. There, there is reason to believe that because of another uh Uh, issue plaguing the world, the climate change, that this is quite a high possibility that we will be coming into a mild winter. But again, uh, it shouldn't be uh, a 44 million people nation, depending on just weather conditions. We we need to have uh, the uh, the security mechanisms, the, the military weapons that allow us to control the safety and security uh, situation and that allow us to preserve the energy infrastructure on the ground. We should look at um, grain exports from Ukraine as well, considering that that's been another controversial topic. Now, 12 grain export ships have left from Ukraine today, despite Russia pulling out of the Turkey and UN brokered grain deal. How are those export ships getting out from the region? Essentially, it's uh, by way of... Uh, Turkish and uh, United Nations efforts that these grain ships are able to get out from the uh, from the Black Sea Straits uh, and be exported to the seven million people who are dependent on this grain. We are hoping that Russia will not uh, do something extraordinarily uh, precarious and damage these grain ships, which are which are being lo- uh, uh, located in in the Black Sea area was already loaded cargo, although with Putin that is uh, that is also a possibility that uh, he might go as far as to um, just completely destroy the, the grain cargo, but that would be a whole different level of using food as a weapon of war and we can only be hopeful that this doesn't happen. But I, again, I go back to, to the notion that 
uh, when we are dealing with power crazed dictators like Putin, it's not enough to just be hopeful for some kind of higher force, higher power that the weather conditions will save us or that uh, by way of just uh, wishful thinking that uh, the grain cargo will be safe and secure. I think our, our goal uh, should be uh, a unanimous one and making sure that Putin's regime falls as quickly as possible and that it no longer poses a threat to Ukraine, to global food security and to any other countries that might feel at risk from uh, Russia's aggression or that are feeling the consequences of Russian aggression. Absolutely. Thank you very much for your insights, Lesia. That was Lesia Vasilenka joining us from Ukraine. And now here is Monaco's Carol Rebello with the day's other news headlines. Thanks, Marcus. Brazil's leftist leader, Luiz Inácio Lula da Silva, has become the country's new president after narrowly defeating Jair Bolsonaro in the presidential election. However, the far-right incumbent has not yet conceded defeat, raising concerns he might contest the result. We'll have much more on this story after the headlines. Ghana's president, Nana Akufo-Addo, has said his country is experiencing its worst economic crisis in history. Fuel prices are high, inflation has risen to a record 37.2% and the currency has depreciated by over 50% this year so far. The president announced a raft of measures, including a $3 billion IMF bailout program and a 30% cut in the salaries of the president and other government appointees. And China's Southern Airlines has cancelled plans for two Boeing 737 MAX flights, which would have represented the model's return to passenger flying in China after more than three years. The 737 MAX had been grounded in March 2019, following fatal crashes in Indonesia and Ethiopia, but has since returned to service, with the exception of China and Russia. Those are the day's headlines. Back to you, Marcus. Thank you very much, Carlosa. It's 21.10 in Seoul, 12.10 here in London. You are listening to The Briefing with me, Marcus Hippi. Now, world leaders have been congratulating Luis Inácio Lula da Silva, who emerged as a winner in Brazil's tightly contested presidential election. He got 50.9% of the vote, while his competitor, far-right president Jair Bolsonaro, got 49.1%. Monaco's Fernando Augusto Pacheco has been following these elections for us and joins me in the studio. Good afternoon to you, Fernando. You've been following the press in Brazil now. What are the papers saying? What is the mood in the country now? Well, the mood, especially in the press, uh, it, it seems that it's like a return to normality. And it's funny because even in Lula's victory speech, when he was saying thank you, you know, for for his allies, for the people that voted for him, he actually thanked the press as well. You know, it's interesting. I'm not saying here that Lula's relationship with the press is the best in the world. I remember when he was a president, he used to give very few interviews here and there, but it's considerably better uh, than Bolsonaro, who actually used to criticize uh, journalists, I mean, saying that, they, you know, they were spreading fake news. So even uh, the reporter from Global, William uh, Bonner, he said, well, everything's sounding so normal, right? A president that mentions the environment, social inequality in his victory speech. So it is that sense of like, oh, things are, mm-hmm. are going back to, uh, you know, something a bit calmer, perhaps. 
perhaps. Well, how normal has the reaction been? What we've got so far from the team Bolsonaro, has he, for example, conceded yet? Not yet. And I've checked uh, this morning. I know it's still early in Brasilia, but, you know, apparently he's, uh, you know, he's welcoming some of his supporters. Uh, but he's been remained completely quiet. He and his sons, there was not a single word on social media and they are very active on social media. So that's very strange. Of course, there's been some figures from the Bolsonaro camp that did say we have to respect democracy, we'll be in opposition, you know, fighting against the government of Lula. But I am very curious, as many Brazilians are, uh, if Bolsonaro will say something today. I have a feeling that he kind of have to say something. Do you think Bolsonaro would contest the vote and, and try to argue that it's not valid? Uh, that's a very hard question because the way Brazilians vote, I have to say Brazilian elections are extremely efficient. You know, we got the vote in three hours, was the fastest uh, count for a Brazilian election ever. It's different from the United States, in fact, which, you know, is a little bit more complicated. It can take days. So it is harder for him to contest the vote. I mean, he can create any other artifice, you know, to fight this, but it would be very hard. Marcos, look at the world leaders that congratulated Lula so fast. And I'm not talking here, I'm talking about Joe Biden, Emmanuel Macron, like, you know, really strong and important world leaders as well. What do you think this election result means for Brazil's relationship with the rest of the world? That's something that will change dramatically. I mean, Lula said that Brazil is back, that the world was missing Brazil because of our size, he said. We can't just be this kind of little pariah that nobody will pay attention. And Lula already signaled that he will travel abroad before he become uh, president, which is early January, uh, which uh, as tradition to Brazilian politics. So we'll see a Brazil back on the world conferences, on climate conferences and everything. You know, I remember a time where actually Brazil, I'm not saying that we were, you know, we were quite diplomatically relevant uh, in a way. We brought kind of a new voice to the world stage and that was a little bit deemed in the Bolsonaro years. So we have to remember that even though Lula is a winner in this election, Jair Bolsonaro still got over 49% of the vote. Is Lula going to reach out to those voters? Is there a way he could somehow try to unite the nation, get everyone on his side? It's going to be hard. I mean, he did try to say, saying that he was going to govern to everyone. And this is not going to be a workers' party government because he did some, uh, you know, his allies include some center-right parties as well. It will be very hard because there is a segment of Brazilian society that they are hardcore bolsonaristas, and even looking at the, you know, at the Congress, at the Senate, even governors, uh, the governor of São Paulo, which is, I would say probably the second most powerful political position in Brazil after president. He's a Bolsonaro ally, Tarcísio. Uh, and the governor of Minas Gerais, another very important state, is also a Bolsonaro supporter, the governor of Rio de Janeiro. It's not going to be easy. But also, on the other hand, Lula has been president twice before. He was very well known to, you know, to talk to different political parties. He does, has, he does have that kind of talent and charisma that could help him. But it will be hard, Marcus. What do you think supporters of Jair Bolsonaro will do next then? And and what does this election result mean for Bolsonaro then? What is he going to be doing next? Well, he'll be very much present in, in the Brazilian political scene. I don't expect him to go away. I already expect him that he probably wants to be president again in 2026. I mean, with these numbers, I mean, it's obvious. Uh, and about his supporters, that's an interesting question. I mean, we, we are already seeing some truck drivers. Uh, they are protesting 
protesting the streets there. They said they want a coup, actually, because they don't accept Lula's victory. So you will see, uh, you know, a, a little bit of this happening in Brazil. But, you know, our democratic institutions, with all the problems, they remain strong. Uh, the election kind of, you know, there, there were some issues we discussed this morning on the globalist as well about the road police, that they were doing suspicious operations, trying to stop uh, voters, uh, you know, to vote, especially in cities where Lula did very well. So I'm not saying the election was perfect, but, you know, it, it is a valid result and all the international community said. So I don't think there is a risk of coup, but, you know, Bolsonaro can try to do something and kind of just create some confusion there. What's also interesting is that Lula doesn't become a president straight away. Actually, there's a bit of waiting. There's a few months waiting until January when the inauguration takes place. How much can Bolsonaro do before that? Yeah, I mean, he's so weakened. I mean, we can, as I said, he's a very unpredictable man. We haven't heard from him yet. And this is true, Marcos. Brazil is quite unique in that sense. Lula becomes president, I believe, on the first or the 2nd of January, it's it's quite strange because then he invites world leaders. I mean, not many world leaders will be available on the, those dates. But let's see. I mean, because this is, as I said, a historic uh, election. But yes, Bolsonaro still has two months, you know, to do, you know, whatever. We have to wait and see. Perhaps there'll be another update on the Monaco Daily today because I am very curious what uh, he's going to say. Monaco's Fernando Augusto Pacheco there. Thanks for joining us here on The Briefing. The U.S. political establishment was shaken on Friday with a brutal attack on the husband of Nancy Pelosi, Speaker of the U.S. House of Representatives. Monaco's Washington correspondent Chris Jemek reports on the reactions of a former President Barack Obama, once the hope and change candidate, who was out on the campaign trail that very same day. Friday was an ugly day in American politics with the kind of news that you can only hope will not become too commonplace in the United States, with the midterm congressional elections just over a week away. Uh, You say you have been briefed by somebody who is familiar with the early stage of this investigation. Share more. I've just been told from a source who was briefed on the attack that the assailant who attacked Paul Pelosi, the Speaker's husband, was in search for the Speaker of the House. That he came into the home shouting, quote, where is Nancy? Where is Nancy? The news of an attack on the husband of House Speaker Nancy Pelosi in San Francisco reverberated all the way around the country to Atlanta, Georgia, where a former president who used to preach hope and change was taking the stage the very same evening of that attack. And I want to take a moment just to say a prayer for a friend of mine, Mr. Paul Pelosi, who was attacked. Barack Obama was back in campaign mode Friday night, stumping for two Georgia candidates, Raphael Warnock for the Senate and Stacey Abrams for governor. Both are in extremely tight races in these midterm elections. But beyond the campaigning, you could tell just how much the news of Pelosi and what it represented about our politics had struck Obama. A politics where, where some in office or who aspired office work to stir up division, to to make folks as angry and as afraid of one another for their own advantage. That strain in his speech, in his words, was a far cry from Obama's early days. Like so many others, I first came across Obama in 2004, 
with his famous speech at the Democratic Party's national convention that year. There is not a liberal America and a conservative America. There is the United States of America. There is not a black America and a white America and Latino America and Asian America. There's the United States of America. Now, whatever side of the political aisle you are on, or you were on at the time, you'd have to concede that that was one of the most defiantly hopeful messages we'd heard from a politician in a long while. And at a time then, too, of brewing divisions in the aftermath of the US-led invasion of Iraq. Barack Obama would, of course, carry that hopeful energy all the way to the White House just four years later. And again, regardless of which party you might belong to, it was one of the most positive elections in American history. Not just Obama, but for the Republican candidate, John McCain. Obama himself reflected on that election when he took to the stage in Atlanta on Friday night. People didn't agree with me on everything, but we could at least talk to each other. And after I won, John McCain, my opponent, graciously conceded, gave me a call. A little while ago, I had the honor of calling Senator Barack Obama to congratulate him, please, to congratulate him on being elected the next president of the country that we both love. Publicly wish me luck for the sake of the country. America today is a world away from the cruel and prideful bigotry of that time. There is no better evidence of this than the election of an African-American to the presidency of the United States. And there was a peaceful transfer of power. That basic foundation of our democracy is being called into question right now. Even if these are changed times, where politics is dangerously combative and presidents do not necessarily accept election results, there is still a lot of love for Obama and what he represents. The importance of what Obama achieved back in 2008 is felt even more deeply here in Atlanta, the birthplace of Martin Luther King Jr. Him and I are the same age. I, I love him. He's an, he's an impeccable human being. This is Sean Harrison, who spoke to me just a few meters away from the burial place of Martin Luther King Jr. and his wife, Coretta Scott King. Does his legacy live on when you look at today and everything that's happening around the U.S.? I think it will. I think that... um. In time, his legacy will, will flower. The whole, the whole historical significance of him. But there is no question that the man that I saw on Friday night was a changed Obama. He was more combative, more aggressive, attacking opponents directly. There was a sort of incredulity to him about what has happened to the Republican Party in particular. It used to be that there were GOP members who championed progress and civil rights and rule of law even when some Democrats, especially down here in the South, did not. That's part of our history. So it has not always been one party or another. But these days, right now, just about every Republican politician seems obsessed with two things. Owning the libs and, and getting Donald Trump's approval. What did I say about booing? <laughs> oh. Obama chastised the crowd repeatedly for booing, almost like he was chiding a badly behaving child, telling them to get out and vote instead. Maybe because in addition to attacking Republicans, 
there was also some incredulity reserved for the wider public, a frustration even that voters did not seem to understand the stakes. I'm the hope and change guy. But I also know that things will not be okay on their own. We have to fight for this. Democracy is not self-executing. It depends on us. It depends on us as citizens saying this matters. This election matters, Georgia. So this was a call to action. Go out and vote. It's not quite the blindly hopeful message I heard all the way back in 2004, but it does still pack a punch. For Monocle in Atlanta, I'm Chris Chermack. Thank you very much, Chris. You are listening to The Briefing on Monocle 24. Finally in the programme, let's leave through some of today's international newspapers. Joining me from Monocle's Zurich studio is the journalist and broadcaster Juliet Linley. Good afternoon to you. Good afternoon, Marcus. So, Juliet, we just heard an update from Chris Jermak about that brutal attack on the husband of Nancy Pelosi on, on Friday. And actually, the first newspaper pick you have for us today is from New York Times, and it's very much about crime and violence in the United States. Tell us more about that. Absolutely. Front page of the New York Times today, we have Maureen Dowd, a great favourite of mine, with a scathing op-ed on the state of her country and the world as it celebrates the gaulish feast of Halloween. And essentially, her point is that this year, nobody needs Halloween because, quote, the world is too scary, politics is too creepy, and the horror is too real. So she writes, America seems haunted by random violence and casual cruelty every day, giving the example in New York City of subway riders getting pushed onto the tracks and innocent bystanders getting shot, as well as officials across the country facing kidnapping plots, armed visits to their homes, assaults and death threats. Uh, And among the acts of violence, she includes, of course, as we heard from Chris Chermak, the hammer attack on the 82-year-old husband of the Speaker of the House, Nancy Pelosi, and the assailant was actually looking for her, as well as what happened on January 6th, when the mob was roaming the Capitol's halls and pounding on the Speaker's door with blood-curdling taunts of, where is Nancy? So with clear references uh, to predictions that the Republicans will win back the House and possibly the Senate to uh, Maureen Dowd's haunting conclusion to her article, uh, Marcus, is simply, if you think Washington is monstrous now, just wait. Is there any optimism whatsoever in this piece? It sounds all just doom and gloom. No, not a lot of optimism, sadly, Marcus. Well, let's wait and see what happens in the uh, in a, in a month's time, as Chris Chermak was reporting from Georgia. Absolutely. Well, let's continue then with news from Italy. I hope your story from La Repubblica is a bit more optimistic. Is it? Ah, uh, sorry. <laughs> well, really, no. As Italy clocks up an inflation rate of twelve percent, highest since '84, and up from nine percent last month, Marcus, driven by energy and food prices, it's universal. University students were amongst those bearing the brunt of the economic crunch. So La Repubblica has a four-page spread on La Crisi Svuota l'Università. The crisis is emptying universities. There's a 3% drop in enrollments just now. And what's common in this country in which students often join universities that are not in their hometowns, they're known as 40 sede students. Well, this academic year, there are 100,000 less 40 sede students because housing costs are through the roof. And parents are telling their teenagers they just can't afford to send 
them to uni in the big cities like Milan, Rome, Bologna. So in Rome, for instance, Marcus, literally just a bed in a rented shared flat can cost even up to 700 euro a month. So slumlords are making a killing. There are only, let's say, 40,000 spots in student lodgings available in the city. And the paper even profiles one student called Marco, who was house hunting in Bologna, and he was stunned when he was asked his height, only to discover that the room that he was replying to in an ad was an attic whose ceiling was only 1 meter 65 in height. Tough times in Italy for students indeed, Marcus. Do you think the government could do anything about that, or is the Italian government busy with something else? Well, the Italian government is very busy with a lot of other things, but certainly, you know, municipalities are saying, the city authorities and the big cities are saying, we are creating more student housing. They have big plans for that and everything, but right right now, Marcus, they're short. They're really, really short on spots, on bed spots in the cities. Well, I'm glad to say that we have time for one more newspaper, and I think we should do something from Switzerland. What have you spotted from Tiger's Anzeiger? Oh, good that you're asking me that. Yeah, I've got the Tiger's Anzeiger in front of me, and front and sender of this uh, leading daily, we have an interview with the mayor of Zurich, uh, telling off English speakers living in her city for not speaking the local language. So, Marcus, some 50,000 inhabitants of Zurich claim English as their foreign, as their mother tongue, sorry. Just 12 years ago, there were only 6,000 of them. Now they're 50,000. So that's quite a jump. And Mayor Corinne Mauch would like them to learn German. Fair enough, right? I mean, bear in mind that they are mostly wealthy expats who uh, move to the city for corporate purposes just for a few years often. So sometimes learning the local lingo isn't quite within their bandwidth. Still, she's right about the principle and she herself even admits that maybe the people of Zurich just have a thing about people not speaking Swiss German since 10 to 15 years ago, many locals were bothered by the influx of native high German speakers from Germany. Also, you know, Marcus, it's funny, but so many baristas and restaurant staff here are English speakers themselves, so they'll serve you in English rather than German. But just to put this into context, Marcus, a little bit, some would say that this is a bit of a luxury problem to have for the mayor, given that the foreigners are high educated, high, highly educated, high-income people, keen to support the local economy and spend. Still, um, there, there are those who say this, this interview is, of course, very much linked to a municipal fund that's worth 250,000 francs that the city of Zurich has to promote so Zurich as a business hub and there are increasing calls for it to perhaps be scrapped so there you go marcus there we um, go yeah do you think do you think this is news today do you think this is something that's 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 mayor Corinne Mauch's personal problem or does that reflect how people of Zurich are feeling more widely how controversial is the topic of foreigners in the city uh, can i tell you that often if i walk into a, a shop and i just kind of say do you speak english they kind of look at me and go you speak a bit of German and they they really kind of want you to make an effort. Then, of course, if their English is way better than your German, they'll switch to English. But fair enough, you know, we are foreigners. Well, actually, I'm Swiss, but I consider myself a non-native German speaker, Marcus, even though I've studied it a lot. So we do. It, it, the onus is on us to, to, to integrate. Uh, yeah. Absolutely. Juliet Lindley joining us from Monaco's Zurich studio. Thank you very much. And that's all for this edition of The Briefing. It was produced by Carla Terabello. Our researcher was Emily Sands and our studio manager was Tamsin Howard. The Briefing is back tomorrow at the same time at midday London time. I am Marcus Hippie. Goodbye and thanks for listening.